Concert promoter. Someone that organizes events and sells tickets. You would think it's that simple. Yet, it is anything but. That's easy. The man I have in studio today has been doing this since 1974. And for the last 46 years, he has put together and been a part of over 12,000 events. It's insane. He has rubbed elbows with that of Herbie Hancock, Paul McCartney, Alice Cooper, Aerosmith, Roger Waters, Jeff Beck, Johnny Depp, Barbara Streisand, Santana, B.B. King, The Doors, Chuck Berry, Bon Jovi, Jerry Garcia, Muddy Waters, don't worry, I'm not going to name them all, Whitney Houston, Guns N' Roses, Motley Crue, Tom Petty, and the likes of Rodney Dangerfield, Andrew Dice Clay, Robin Williams, and as his good friend Kirk Gibson would say, (laughs) he is the straw that stirs the Ah. drink. He is the man that brought music to the valley, and he's the man that's going to bring it back. The 2005 Arizona Arts and Entertainment Hall of Fame inductee, Mr. Danny Zalesko. Get ready for the real estate show that takes you across the barriers and into the danger zone. That bitchin' real estate podcast with your host, Tenacious T. Oh, yeah. This book. Danny gave me a call when I asked him to be on the show. And he said, I have a book that I wrote and finally finished in 2020. And the first thought was, oh, you know, another book. Everybody writes a book and he should do it audio. But when I got the book, I completely understood what you were talking about. This is not a book. This is a coffee table journey of memories, of friendships, of failures, of successes, of hardships. I cried. I laughed. I I found so many moments that reminded me of the nostalgia of my own time, but that also showed me a regular guy can do extraordinary things. And I really, really, really enjoyed it. This is something that cannot, well, I'm sure it could be an audio book, but it would benefit the reader to look at the pictures, to see the eyes and the excitement in the pictures and be there in the moment. Because I remember an interview where you said you were going to put all the pictures in the back of the book or someone had suggested that and it would not have been the same impact. Um, Most books are are like that where they do, like if it's a 300-page book, um, they'll separate every 100 pages with a photo section of five or six pages. And I've always found, and it's always bothered me since I was a kid, if you're reading a book and you get 50, 60 pages in and then there's photos, you got to go back to those first 50, 60 pages and it interrupts your whole train of thought of what you're doing when you're reading. It does. Um, So it's incredibly harder to make the book Mm -hmm. because if you have it in there the way I do, Tondra, uh, who uh, works with me... um, and, and finished the final edit on this, which was, like, so hard for her to do. She struggled with it. But every time you move a word or a mm-hmm. picture when you're doing it like that, yes. it throws the whole book off. Yes. So you have to be very, very careful. Um, it, it made it much harder mm-hmm. to do it. And, you know, see the way this book is. It's shaped. It's yes. called The Landscape Book. We've just done a portrait size book, which is the book like this. Yes. Right? And and it opens normally like that. 
in order to do a Kindle, which we just did for for uh, Amazon, mm -hmm. we had to completely reformat the book yes. and start completely over again. Yeah. yeah. So I have two different versions of the book, and the fun thing about the new version that Amazon has is that we had to add 50 or 60 more pictures because when we re-edited it for the portrait size, yeah. there's these big holes, yeah. you know, in between various places where there was once a picture, but they won't fit. So poor me, I got to put oh, another 50 yeah. pictures in. <laughs> there's so many, so many great pictures that I've been um, fortunate enough to have been a part of, like you see in this book. Um it's uh, it's fascinating to me to look back and go, God, who is this guy? It is, and <laughs> and what really helped me is you know, there's there's a lot of artists that I'm not familiar with. You know, I, obviously, I, yes. I mean, I love music and I always was a part of my life, but we we don't know every single artist sure. out there. You know, and you have to be a true enthusiast. But what was fun was if I didn't know the artist, I could quickly Google and listen to that music and understand what you're talking about because the picture's right there and I can go right there right then yep. without having to flip through the pages like you say and it made it a, a true journey and there's also a structure to the book it's not like okay I was bored and I did this you take pieces of the story where you met the artist or the person and expand on how they affected your life but then you move on to another artist or another person that must have been the very difficult part for you is who do you highlight? Who do you talk about? Because I'm sure everyone that you came in contact to changed you in some way, shape, or form. Yeah. Uh, you know, after 40-something years of doing that, everybody makes some sort of impression on you. Some people influence you. Some people make you angry. Some people give you smiles when you think back about them. And you never want to insult anybody yeah. in such a book. Um, and 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 not have them included. I had a few phone calls from people saying, "Why aren't I in yeah. the book?" <laughs> and how do you say to somebody, the people that are in the book either had better stories, better hair, <laughs> or yes. or or even more so, they they had something that was in step with with me and them in their business because most of this is about business. It's mm -hmm. not about friendships and talking about your buddy from down the street when you're yeah. growing up and all that thing. It's like, n other than in, in the Phoenix area, not that many people know who I am. No, and I didn't, want to, I didn't want to assume that when I wrote this about whatever I thought was interesting, mm -hmm. um, that they would find interesting. So I edited it in my head. Once the story started to come out in paper and we're editing and we're putting the stories in what order chronologically, yeah. um, it got to the point where I ended up taking out some chapters because they just didn't fit in and it made the book even longer because as it is, I, I the, one of the other reasons I went this size book, this shape, was because I could get more stuff on each page. Yes. Um, it would have ended up being more like 400 pages which is an awful long book for a, a rookie writer. <laughs> it, it is. And having published my own book, I know the difficulties um, of creating the structure. Like I said, the telling of the story is so important. You have to capture the reader long enough for them to actually want to flip yeah, the page yeah. and then keep them flipping the page. And there are a lot of pictures in here, pictures that, you know, I posted a few and some of my friends were like, where did you get that? And I'm like, well, you're going to have to order the book, man. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. You know, with, with this one, 
I would be so happy if if I could like break even on the actual yeah. costs of printing and and the writing and and everything that was involved. That would be like to me a triumph. Yes. Uh, because my whole life is geared about breaking even. Mm -hmm. It's really about yes. making money. Yeah. <laughs> and it's also about working with great artists and having great times. And this is like a collection of a lot of those great times. Yes. Um, way at the beginning when I, when we were doing this, I decided I wasn't going to use it to get back at anybody who mm -hmm. might have offended my right. my poor little self, you know, along, right. <laughs> along the years. And there have been some people that there were some really weird, confusing times that I still don't understand how or why things turned out with certain right. people the way they did. But this isn't the place to figure no. that out. No. Um, I'd rather stumble on something new ahead of me. Right. <laughs> So you are a Chicago-born son, a Cubs fan, and one, the first time I cried in your book uh, was Brian Piccolo. Mm. That, that really struck me because he was young, but he was gracious. Mm -hmm. He was very gracious to a kid that just wanted to help him get, make some money off of autographs. Mm -hmm. And he's like, hey, you should get paid for this too. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us a little bit about those moments? Well, I met him um, when he first got out of college. He got out of college in '64, and he and I was I was never a big college uh, sports fan because I I didn't go to college, mm -hmm. and at that point I didn't know if I was going to go or not. Yeah. I was only twelve or thirteen. Um, but I've always been kind of an underdog supporter um, because I, too, feel like over the years there, I've been an underdog, too. A lot of kids were taller than me. Mm -hmm. They ran faster. They, their parents had more money. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't sit there and go, woe is me. I'm short, which I am. You <laughs> so know, am I. <laughs> it's, yeah, nothing wrong with short. It, this, was, this was a way of just growing up with myself in terms of yeah. – um, thinking about what I thinking really, about what happened. Yeah. What I really enjoyed is exactly what you said. You're a kid, and you're figuring out a way to meet your people, your heroes. And you got to figure out how you're going to belong there, mm -hmm. because I've seen so many times where people they're just nervous, they stumble over themselves, and and whoever it is that they want to impress or at least be able to stay a little while longer with. They'll get tired of people that yeah. act out, you know. Yeah. And and they, you know people don't do it on purpose. It's normal to get shaky when oh, for sure. you're around one of your people that you, you've only seen on TV or in the newspaper on baseball cards or something like that. But in Brian's case, um, I I already had an affinity for him because he was the top rusher in in the college football league. Mm -hmm. And he got passed over. Nobody drafted him. Yeah. I mean, he was screwed. And they ended up signing him as a free agent. Um, and it was the same year Gail Sayers came out, who, yeah. who, while he was a famous runner already as a college player, when he got into the pros, Piccolo was a better runner for numbers. But Sayers was something magic and special. Um, Brian was lucky he got drafted even the way that he did. And, and who knew what impact he was going to make um, on the world? I mean, everybody knows that, that movie. And I'm, I'm so sad that it took uh, him getting this terrible disease and dying at a yeah. very young age 
That's what it took for him to become a household word mm-hmm. instead of the way that he wanted it, right. which is to be known as a great dad and, and, and a great football player. He did get a chance to break some barriers by becoming roommates with Sayers. With, with Gail Sayers, and, yeah. and that was the first black and white mm-hmm. uh, duo. Um, and they, oh, they used to get after each other. <laughs> it, it was just so funny. I mean, and and only friends can talk like that to right. each other. You know, right. I wouldn't say what they said no. to each yeah. other. <laughs> uh, I mean, you know, he'd be going, hey, Sayers, what are we having tonight? You know, he goes, don't tell me it's watermelon again. That kind of yeah, stuff. I mean, ha- yes. just the stuff that guys do to each mm-hmm. other. And you go, no, we're going to have some of that pasta with gravy. <laughs> we have sauce in our house. Right? We don't have gravy. And they would just get after it. It was fun, you know. Yeah. And, 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 and to me, what was special about days like that and things like that is that I was privy to these very private conversations. Yeah. But they felt good enough about me being around that, you know, they would do them in front of me. And that's when you know you've kind of arrived, or you you know you made it. And you held that essence your entire life, yeah. because there is a reason why you are the straw that stirs the drink, because you are that guy that anyone can sit in a room with, right? You know, yeah, that that was fun that that uh, that Gibby used that in the in the forward, but that was that was actually a Reggie Jackson line. Was it really? And he was talking about himself. <laughs> Reggie's never been known for being shy mm-hmm. or, or not proud of his his uh, abilities. Um, but I, I thought it was a great line. But Ernie Banks. Ernie Banks, you know, the mayor of the world, you know. Um, we met Ernie, uh, my brother and I, uh, we met him a few years before Piccolo. And we, we were allowed to go down to Wrigley Field from our suburban home. We were maybe 12 miles away from Wrigley, so it was a matter of a couple of bus rides. But I went with my older brother, and he was maybe 13 or so when we started going down there uh, to see the players. And um, it, it was a blast. I mean, I mean, I would still do it today. I consider the Wrigley Field area very, very safe. But I was I ended up going down there myself when I was like 9, 10 years That's old. That's crazy. And then my parents found out that I'd been doing that, and they flipped <laughs> out. But nothing ever happened. Thankfully, and uh, uh, I always managed to uh, avoid any trouble. Yeah. And I, I got what I set out for, which was to get a pocket full of cards signed by these people I've been watching. The great thing about those years, 63 through about 68, was this is when the, the greatest football and baseball players, as far as I'm concerned, mm-hmm. were, were in rare form. They were, they were out then. That's when, that's when they were playing now. They're older guys. They're yeah. older. They're still older than me if they're alive, and and they got to uh, they got to be a part of of this team during the modern age, as opposed to like a Babe Ruth or a Lou Gehrig was very much the olden days and, and at the beginning of baseball, which were very special times. Um, but but growing up in Chicago in the '60s, um, the whole everything that was going on there. And, Ernie was a, a pivotal figure of Chicago. Um, yes. All from the time I was born, I knew his name. And the fact that I ended up getting to be friends with him was, uh, I couldn't have asked for more. You know, I mean, my brother and, and Ernie were great friends. Um, Jimmy did publicity for Ernie after Ernie quit playing ball in the early 70s. And and we all continued to be friends. And he would call or I would call and 
he'd come out for spring training and we got to hang out, play golf with him a couple times, which was un- unbelievable. Yeah, I can't even. <laughs> Me and him and Billy Williams play golf. And these two guys, they have these great swings as batters. But as golfers, their swings were just flawless. They're beautiful. <laughs> um, you know, and it, it was such a great way to grow up. I, I wouldn't change it for anything. But that all led for me into being around other special people that were talented in, in music, yes. which I also took a liking to from the time I was a little kid. I don't know why, because neither of my parents were really very musical. And they had six kids, so they were very busy doing that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but my brother and I became very, very big music fans, and um, I, I can't tell you how much. I mean, they, the, these music, uh, the people that made the music became our babysitters. Yeah, you know, we had we had great fun listening all the time, <laughs> and learned how to play drums while we're listening to them, getting yelled at for turn it down. And, <laughs> Rumor has it that you can sing as well. Uh, I, I don't know. You know, I, I, I'd have to do it some. Sometime for you, you let me know, but I can carry a tune. Yeah, yeah. I've had a lot of good uh, good mentors, you know. That, oh, yes, you have. And I've had some people try to teach me. I'm I'm just not like That's why I do what I do. Yes. And they don't do it. Exactly. And I remind them of that. Yeah. You know, you don't tell me how to buy a show, and, and I won't tell you how to sing. It's kind of like the author and the editor. The author has the creativity and the idea and wants to put it out. On paper, but the editor is the one who implements it. Yeah, you became a promoter for those guys getting autographs and selling them for them because they weren't making any money. Or not really. Well, they were making what they made. This was just extra money. This was pocket mm-hmm. money for them, and and it really it only happened on a few occasions because, like I, I had written about in there, there was a number of times where I'd heard about things and somebody asked, "What what do you think about so and so? Would they be able to do this?" I don't know what they're doing. I'm not their agent. I don't even know the word agent. But many times I passed along a date or phone numbers and a name mm-hmm. of people who needed somebody to come and sign autographs or shake hands or kiss babies. And uh, I got a bunch of guys' jobs from that. Yeah. And and it was Piccolo who found out that I was doing that and hadn't gotten paid. And, mm-hmm. and, and he got agitated about it. Um, you know, he, he told these guys, you know, you wouldn't do that if it was an adult because an adult wouldn't be, he would have already made it clear. Danny didn't know how to make that yeah. clear. So it was very sweet of him to to show me that. And, boy, I wish he had stuck around uh, a while longer like him, like his family and everybody else because yes. uh, it would have been a kick taking him to a show. You yeah, know? yeah. He, he would have sure. loved it. He would have loved saying, I knew that kid when he was this big. and <laughs> I was the one who gave him the idea way back yeah, when. Yeah, yeah exactly. Well, you know, I, what did I create here? So you became that connector in many ways, the guy that knew the guy that knew the guy and could connect sort that kind of yeah business manner as a kid. And you came out to Phoenix one year and found out that there isn't a promoter out here. Yeah, there was there was one. He ran the celebrity theater. Oh yes, that's right. He did run the Celebrity Theater, but he didn't do shows anywhere else. Mm-hmm. Um, so the Celebrity being over 2,500 capacity, there's so many groups that come out that were coming out in the 70s um, that really didn't have any place to go play. Yeah. Um, this was before nationally recorded groups were, were playing nightclubs like as a circuit mm-hmm. all over the country. 
Um, like in Chicago and New York, San Francisco, there was always those places that would put on shows and they do multiple shows in a week and in a night. Um, Phoenix, you know, when I moved out here over 40 years ago, um, it was like nothing against Flagstaff or Tucson, <laughs> but it was like, a, it was like the small town. Yeah. You know, I mean, Phoenix was the biggest town. It's always been the biggest town in the state. There was pretty much the Camelback Inn, and that was it, right? Camelback Inn, you <laughs> yeah. know, and I, I remember the Brown Derby on Scottsdale yep. Road. That was my favorite. I had for, a steak there, too. <laughs> you know, I love I love that place, but there was so little here at that time, and I just loved it here. Uh, Camelback got me as soon as I, I pulled into town, yeah. and, and um, the music uh, that was being played on the radio here at the time, Katie Kaby. Uh, was fantastic that and, and they were connected with this guy who ran the shows at the celebrity and I knew that I wasn't going to get anywhere uh, if this guy was around yeah um, and and he got involved with opening Compton Terrace with uh, another promoter and 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 the Knicks family Justin G Nicks he lasted one year and he bailed I don't know why but he left after that. And Compton was open, and I started little by little getting, because I was still at the beginning of my career then. Yes. I, I got some good shows to put in there. Um, <clears throat> and it, it one thing led to another, and he left town, and I was left alone, and what fun I've had. You put your nose to the grind. Yeah. Because the other thing that I don't think a lot of people realize, and I didn't even realize it until I started really digging into your story myself, is... You are also the talent seeker. Like you said, the underdog. There was artists that weren't getting their airtime. They weren't getting their opportunity. And in many ways, you're a talent scout. Yeah. Well, you're kind of like that as, as a promoter because what, what I found out when I started, and I called up this big agency in New York called Premier Talent, and I asked them for some of my favorite groups, how much does it cost to get yes? Mm -hmm. How much does it cost to get... Emerson, Lake, and Palmer. How much did it cost? You know, and Bruce Springsteen was a baby band then, so I yeah. could have <laughs> gotten him for 500 bucks yeah. back then. Um, they want you to work on the bands at the beginning of your career as a promoter. Mm -hmm. They want you to work on bands that they need help with. They don't need help selling who tickets. Right. You know, and I didn't have the money to buy them anyway right. at that point. I had very little money. And... You have to do those little shows and show that you can do it and promote and put on the show and get the audience in and out and everybody goes home safe and they're happy and you call them up and say, everything went great, let's do another show. So, I mean, it was one at a time then yeah. until you get to the point where they trust you enough where you can start booking more than one show at a time. And uh, it got to the point, one day we had eight shows in one day. Oh, my God. In, in seven or six different cities. And this is eight shows. You've got you've to get the caterer. You've got to sell the tickets. You've got to have the sound, the lighting, the music, the venue. It, it is a huge task to take on. You're like, not imagine, just sitting in a booth selling doing, a ticket. Imagine doing eight weddings in one day. Without the internet and only being able to announce it on the radio. Right. And newspaper. And a newspaper and a few flyers. Right. Yeah, but you need to sell out that wedding venue. <laughs> yeah, or, or or you need, you know, I mean, you don't necessarily have to sell out. It's a nice thing when you do, um, but you can make money on shows that don't sell out. But the funny thing is, is when you see a hall that looks very well filled up, people don't know what's really going on. And right. there's two seats here and there's 10 seats there. And 
you got it adds up to a couple thousand tickets. The, your money as a promoter, you don't make until it gets close to sell out. Until everyone else has been paid, that's when you make your money. Everybody else has to get paid first. Yes. You get left with oh, what's left over. Whatever's left over. So you're a pretty much a kid, 19, right, when mm -hmm. you came out here. And you're having to come up with your own money. And Jam Productions came into play. Right. Uh, well, my parents and, and another friend of mine gave me the original original stake, which I lost. And uh, and I was, I'd gotten a job booking... Uh, Shows at a place called Dooley's in Tempe on Apache Boulevard, where mm -hmm. it's now a charter school. It's very sad. I remember Dooley's, though. Yeah. <laughs> I remember it well. Yeah. It was an incredible place because it it brought together national or even world-class bands into our little suburb of Phoenix. And uh, we we had a room that, that was measured against a lot of other rooms around the country, and it was the newest and the best of its kind. Yes. There was a couple of things that I would have done better, uh, like put a bathroom backstage. Oh, God. Um, that <laughs> yes, wasn't, that, that would have been so, helpful. <laughs> so, so anybody who's using the, had to use the bathroom, they had to go outside and walk up the walk that went behind the building to the administrative offices, and there was, oh, a, there was a bathroom there. So it was a small hike. It wasn't yeah. very, very far, but typically... You know, for any band that of, of national repute that is playing somewhere, you want to have a yeah. a place for them to get ready for the show <laughs> right. and, and all that. Wash your hands, you well, know, relieve yeah, yourself, well, something. But you see, when they built the club, they they built the club with the thought of having cover bands. In other words, bands that come in and play other people's music mm -hmm. that really aren't named bands, but right. they're adequate in playing dance music and in, in creating the entertainment so they can charge no money for admission or a buck or two or whatever. And they play three or four sets a night of other people's music. Mm -hmm. So you're not really, you know, fawning all over these bands. You, you know, they come to work, they do their job, you do your job, sell the booze. Right. It's all well, about that, the, the sales of the, the liquor and, and people coming in, and yes. And then I came along, and I'm going, well, we need bathroom. Well, what do you mean they need their own bathroom? <laughs> They're not going to go share the bathroom with all the people. And anyway, there, and the stage could have been a little bit different, but by and large, it, for the time, it was one of the best rooms in America for doing these shows. And um, it, I little did I know what it was going to catapult into, but... Uh, fortunately, I never made such large mistakes that I would be financially ruined. Right. Uh, because that that'll stop you from having a good time. Uh, uh, for sure. <laughs> you know. Uh, but uh, you know, and and you mentioned Jam, which were yes. there were bigger promoters than me at the time in Chicago, and I became friends with them and family. They gave me a very small amount of money to help me. Um, fix a gap of where I owed somebody some money and I needed it. And they ended up getting in business with me from that point. I was 1978 until I sold in 2001. One of the things that I took note while reading your book is there were times when you missed opportunities or when you didn't, to put in your own words, ask for them or follow up on them. Stevie Nicks was one of those. Mm -hmm. And I think it's a great lesson for any entrepreneur who's wanting to start anything out there is you have to ask for it. 
at any time, whether you're just a kid starting or you're you're far enough into it like I am now, I still have those moments where I'm not 100% sure if I should book a show or not. And, and in some cases, you could be completely wrong and, and really you can get hurt and lose a, a lot of money. But this was at the very beginning of my career, mm-hmm. and I didn't want to get you know, put to the cross before I even got a shot. Right. And and the show that I was trying to work on was Buckingham Next, which was Lindsay Buckingham and Stevie, who were living together at the time, and uh, Dan Fogelberg and Jerry Riopel, and all three of them I could have got for less than five grand. Oh, my God. All three. <laughs> and I didn't pull the trigger. And, and it was just a matter of having cold feet. Um, I was afraid to lose, and and nobody anywhere else that I knew around the country even knew who these people right. were. Yeah. But in Phoenix, we had this dynamite radio station, KDKB, and they're playing each of those bands five, ten times a day. Yes. So whenever you play an excellent band or excellent music on a commercial radio station, and it's good, the repetition is going to get into people's heads just like a top forty mm-hmm. song, and and uh, people. They want to see it. In this market, people had better taste than they did in many other markets. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and that's why Phoenix was such a it was such a hotbed in the 70s for Billy Joel and Jackson Brown and Bruce Springsteen and Electric Light Orchestra. I mean, there's so many great bands where with that theater, the celebrity yeah. and that radio station, they were magic together. Yeah. And and these bands are still big or, or, or remain big for years to to come where, you know, the shelf life of many bands is no longer than five years. Yeah. These guys are still big here, mm-hmm. you know, and it, it stuck. Part of why you became as successful as you are is you got a chance to get on the radio and do promotions, promote yeah. the bands that you're going to bring on. Word has it you were pretty fun on well, that radio. <laughs> um, well, there was a guy on KDKB named Hank Kukenboo, and sadly for Hank, uh, I had met him in um, 72 or 3, and and he got some degenerative eye disease, which mm-hmm. made him nearly, or finally at the end, blind completely. Mm-hmm. But while he was on the air, this was happening, and I mean, I, I was in the studio with him one day, he's doing a show, and he was looking, there's wall, this wall of records where they pulled everything from. And he had his eyes, I mean, this far away from the records. I go, what is wrong with you? Yeah. He goes, I, I've got this problem with my eyes. I think it's going to get straightened out, but so far I'm, it's really bad. So I, I started driving him to work on Sunday afternoons. And um, I guess Hank didn't think that the boss was going to be listening on Sundays. So he liked to go take a nap in the middle of the afternoon. Oh, this is and great. And he go take take care of it for an hour, yeah. Cisco. And so I brought my own records with me, and I brought all, I call it the English Import Hour, and I brought uh, the my favorite records that they weren't playing. I wanted to play music that a progressive rock radio station wasn't yeah. playing, which meant I had to go very deep. Yeah. And um, one day the the boss Bill Compton calls me up with that voice of God of his, and he goes. Who is that you're playing right now? And I said, um, uh, that's the new Peter Frampton record, which he hadn't heard yet. It was, he had just left Humble Pie, and he goes, very good. Um, make a note for that and, <laughs> you know, for me, and I, I want to get that record. I said, I'll leave you mine. He goes, great. So I, I left it for him. He called me the next week. He goes, you do a great job with it. He goes, I'm sorry, I don't have 
any openings. I said, do you mind if I keep doing that? Yeah. Because I, I drive Hank as a favor to him. He goes, have at it. You know, it's fine. He goes, I'm not paying you. I said, well, that's not what this is about. He goes, I know. I can tell. You really, you really yeah. like doing it. And you're good. So go ahead. So I did that for about a year. But this was at the very beginning of the career before I started. Uh, I was able to buy shows mm -hmm. um, on a daily or weekly basis. And during that time, you also had to work small, little, shitty jobs yeah. to make some money. No question. Uh, you know? I mean, I actually had a pretty good job uh, was selling waterbeds. Um, water, oh, yeah. <laughs> water, waterbeds were a big deal in the 70s. Yes, they were. They it, were it, cool, man. <laughs> it, it's just so amazing that... That after a, a period of time, they just completely went out. Yeah, it was no longer. I don't. I don't know anybody that has one anymore, and I haven't for decades. You know, every but, once in a while in real estate, I'll come across an old house that's got a waterbed, and I'm like, hmm. Yeah. How long has that water been sitting in that bed? <laughs> well, I, I hope they added their algae. Right. <laughs> I yeah, remember I, doing it that. It was. It was. Uh, you know, I I did that, and uh, uh, the great thing about that was. Um, when I was hired to do the waterbeds uh, sales, the reason I met this particular store and the, and the people that owned it was because they called me and wanted me to book this Jeff Beck uh, concert at the Civic Plaza in 75. I didn't have the money to do it. They said, if you do it and if it makes money, we'll split it with you. And if you don't, you don't have any risk. So I had nothing to lose. And it naturally didn't do well. Um, <laughs> Downtown at the convention center, I mean, they have a great complex there. Yes. But the room that we did Jeff in wasn't the symphony hall. It was just like mm. a big convention center, four walls and, and no vibe, yes. no, no coolness to it. But it was still Jeff Beck, uh, but it didn't work, so I didn't make any money. But I got a waterbed sales job out of it, and I did that for about a— about a year and a half, and it was great. I mean, now I was making five hundred to a thousand a week. You could eat back then. <laughs> that was good money. It was great money. I mean, it's still not bad. And and uh, not that I want to sell water, but fortunately, the the concert started finally coming in enough where I could do that for a living. The other one was cleaning buildings. I hated doing that. Right? Yeah. Mm. <laughs> Nobody wants to clean up anybody else's crap, do they? <laughs> Not really. Not you really. Know, but you know what? I, I really, I didn't mind it. I, I tried to tell myself this is a stepping stone. I'm gonna, yes. I'm gonna get successful at this, and I'm glad to have this job in the meantime to pay my bills. Was it the fact that you were, in many ways, addicted to? listening to music and being a part of the back scene, the backstage scene, the, the being able to, as you say, live vicariously in a way through them. I didn't know about all that to the degree that I learned about mm -hmm. it at that time. I did it because it seemed like this is what I wanted to do. I wanted to be right, uh, knowing how much to pay somebody and right on which hall to put them in and right mm. on how much ticket prices should be and what people will pay. Uh, it's all, it's not about how much can you get them to pay. It's about how much is reasonable for them to pay compared to somebody else. Right. You know that that's either bigger or smaller. Um, you know, people don't realize that as as a promoter or a talent buyer, you have input as to where they play or how much you're going to charge for tickets. But you kind of have this already written for you before you even start the conversation. Because in the band or the representative's mind, they um, have an idea in mind of what they're going to charge. Right, and what they're worth. they're not going to accept anything less. Yeah. So if somebody says, 
it's $10,000 for our show. You still got to pay for all the other mm-hmm. stuff, the advertising, the ushers, the catering backstage, everything. Yes. And you'll end up with maybe costing about 30 grand to do a, to do a show. And remember back then in the 70s, Tickets were three, four, five, six bucks. Mm-hmm. So even at six bucks, that's a shitload gotta, of tickets. <laughs> you got to do five thousand tickets yeah. times six bucks just to break even. Yeah. And believe me, no matter how much or little you charge for a ticket, if people don't know who it is and they don't hear them on the radio and they don't care, yeah, you can get all the best deals you want in the world when you're buying acts. Um, but if you're wrong, you're dead. James Brown was one that kind of stuck out in my head. Man that had been through some tough times, but... uh, He sticks out in my head still. (laughs) He clearly thought he was worth a little bit more at the time. Well, but you see, one of the hardest things in, in show business, not just the music business, in show business, like I was saying a little earlier, um, people only last as stars for so long, typically. Very few people, you know, stay huge. Um, Kenny Rogers, for example, who who started out as a member of the Fifth Edition, and they had one great big song, and then he left them, and he turned. He was a rock singer, psychedelic band singer, and he turned into a country singer, and he got huge. I, I think he came here at one point and could sell out two activity centers yeah. at ASU or or the Coliseum. I mean, he was huge for years yes. and years. But after a while, other other types of country music or pop music came in that replaced him, mm-hmm. and he kind of became passe. Yes. So that he was no longer as popular as he was at one point. That didn't make him crummy, and it didn't make him worthless. But what it just said was, you're not as popular as you once were, and and a lot of artists, baseball players, football players, they all have promoters. <laughs> We, shelf life. We, everybody has, yeah, but everybody's shelf life is different. It's yes. all up to you how long it's going to be or, you know, until your legs fall off. Right. How long can you preserve thyself? <laughs> right. So, uh, you know, I mean, the groups that, that lasted a long time, I mean, bravo to them. It, it's so hard to get there, and then it's so hard to stay on top. Not only that, the the nuances of being extremely famous and having to deal with that on a daily basis, and like you kind of said towards the end of your book, you were there with them during the concerts. You partied with them during the concerts, but you also got a break from it. You got to step away from that. When you were done for the night, yeah. you went home, you were done for the night, and you didn't have to keep doing it and over and over and over again like they do. Well, it's different because what I had to do is then wake up and do it with somebody else. I right. mean, I was a one-night stand kind of guy. You, you had you know? business to run. <laughs> and, and 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 these other guys, I mean, they're, they're on a tour, but they would go from one city to the next and, and work for, usually work for a different promoter um, in, in each town. But then, you know, as time went on, I wanted to be, do more shows with some of these mm-hmm. people, especially the ones that I like musically and especially the ones I really got along with that were fun to work with. Yes. There was other groups back in the day um, that that weren't so fun to work with, and, and they would be very, very difficult in terms of uh, not just with what they requested, but how they did it. You know, yeah. it's like, you know, you know, you're working for us, when in reality, I'm paying you which makes yeah. me the employer. You need to listen to me. They don't always agree with that. 
generally we like to have an even situation where we're both there to serve each other. And, and I like to think that they're working for the fans. The fans are the ones paying, right? Well, the fans are the ones paying. Um, uh, that's a very good point. But the bottom line is the fans aren't guaranteeing them their no, salaries. No, I am. You are. Uh, and without the fans, I wouldn't be able to do that for very long. That's for sure. Um, but, you know, I mean, the fans are boss. The promoter is boss. But at the end of the day... Without the songs and without the ability to perform, mm -hmm. we're all nothing. You had a few, probably more than a few, but there was a few highlighted moments in here where you got canceled the day of. Yeah. And you've already had to pay people, and you still have to pay people. And those are the moments that I'm curious as to why did you continue forward? You ha you were hit pretty hard by some, some of those incidences. Well, you don't. You know that's what they that's what they want to find out. These agents and, and groups and managers want to find out at the beginning. Can you take a punch? Mm -hmm. You know, and you have to be able to take a punch. Not every show is going to work out. And when these agents, the they have booking agencies. Now have there's booking agents that I've seen. They represent one act. Yeah. Then there's another agent who represents fifty acts. Mm -hmm. The bottom line is you want them to sell you everything that they have even the ones you don't like because you don't want them getting in bed with somebody else right. and have well now they he took a few hits on some crummy shows so now they're going to sell them this big act right. to make up for it and that's kind of the way the barter system works in the business and and that's why uh, people become favorites to work with rather than other people uh, I, I through over the years I took some hits I did some favors yes I did some things for people that if it was just this band standalone and I could listen to what they sounded like or is there an audience here or not for them uh, you know maybe I'd take a chance on it but when somebody says I got Bruce Springsteen over here and you know I'm going to sell it to somebody else who's taking all my crummy shows unless you take those shows yeah. and then you'll get it's a very odd system, and and it's really, it's really not like that anymore. Because what happened in over all those years is that now, like many other businesses, that, that it became that, a conglomerate. Well, conglomerate. I mean, like for instance, when we were kids, there was a corner deli store everywhere mm -hmm. you go, a neighborhood, yeah, you know, place for your milk and your cold cuts and all that stuff. Then, boom, along comes Circle K, yep. undercutting everything, yet everything in one in one place, and suddenly those people are out of business. Um, years ago, uh, some people uh, with a lot of money went around and started buying up promoters yeah. to try to make it a better business for everybody. But little did I realize that when that happened, the guy that was doing it that bought me, along with all the other major promoters in the country, um, I didn't realize that he was planning on bundling everybody and together out. and selling it to Clear Channel. That was a really, really hard part for me to read in your book um, that hurt. emotionally because there is something about that mom and pop store. Yeah. And that it, that is how you painted this picture of promoters through the first three quarters of your book. You, you're almost rooting for you to be able to, to get these artists because you know what the you're doing and mm -hmm. and you can put on this amazing show if they just uh, trust you enough to do it mm -hmm. and like you said you had to you had to put up with the punches and you had to be taken down because that's part of the job and you were able to prove that you were the man who could take it 
and therefore you were rewarded for it for, with loyalty. Yeah. And then some big dude comes in and sweeps it all up and takes all of that out of it. But he gave everybody a lot of money while he was doing it. He paid for that, and and we went along with it. Nobody put a gun to anybody's right. head. Right. But the thing is, when it happened, we didn't realize what was going on. Um, you know, as far as suddenly you go from being your own boss, you're running your own shop, mm -hmm. and now you're an employee. And now, without you, you even to. knowing it, you're an asset in somebody's toolkit. Yes. And and they put you all together and they sell you to somebody else. I never met the guy. Man, the stories this guy can tell. Stay tuned next week for the rest of my interview with the legendary Danny Zalesko. Oh.